Roundup podcast for the weeks of February 5 through February 16, 2018. I'm Gwen Jordanay, and I'm an editor in the Communications and Marketing Office at UC Santa Cruz. I'm Dan White. I'm a writer at the Communications and Marketing Office at UC Santa Cruz. And we're going to dig into the recent news from UC Santa Cruz, all of which you can find at news.ucsc.edu. But first, a word from our sponsor. This week's podcast brought to you by... Memos! Hugely important topic. (laughs) Hugely. Memos Worldwide wants you to know they're usually actually understandable. Exactly. Did you get the memo? I, I, I tried to read the memo, but about I, memos. I, well, actually, I read about the memo, and I was so like lost even reading about the memo that I couldn't even finish reading about the memo. Kind of an ugly word, memo. <laughs> no one says memorandum. You no could, one. but it sounds so. Could you get my memorandum <laughs> that I wanted to go to the cinema with you tonight? It must have happened in the interregnum of my While break. While I was waiting on the tarmacadam. <laughs> Is that for real, tarmacadam? Yeah, right. Oh, yeah, waiting on the tarm. Yeah, because the plane, because I was driving on the macadam the other day. (laughs) But I crashed because of the memorandum that I was reading. You're trying to read the memorandum. All right, let's get going. Okay, we've got a really fun way to start here. You've heard of Mavericks, right? Terrifying. Office building sized yes. waves that crash near, is that Half Moon Bay? Yeah, Where Half that Moon is? Bay. That's, that's the huge wave break in Half Moon Bay. And you're right, they're office building size. They can get to 60, even 100 feet. And big wave surfers flock there when there's a big swell. And there's been a big wave contest there on Goodyear's since 1999. I actually covered that contest when I was a reporter back in the day. And I can tell you... That wave is spooky. Well, one of our very own slugs, Sarah Gerhardt, who earned a PhD in physical chemistry here in 2003, was the first woman ever to surf Mavericks. And she did that in 1999. And now she could become one of the first women to compete in the Mavericks surf contest. Incredible. Yeah. If they run the contest this year, it'll be the first time they'll have a women's heat. And this is historic. Sarah Gerhardt grew up on the beaches of Hawaii, but she says her time there wasn't the charming version of the movies. Her youth was shaped by poverty, illness, sometimes homelessness. She said her family had no money, so they ate, slept, and lived on the beach. With those stresses and others on land, the water became her refuge, and she fell in with a group of talented male surfers, including her now husband, Mike Gerhardt, and was soon riding giant waves. Now, the competition window for the Maverick Surf Contest closes February 28, which is only a week and a half away, so it's not looking super likely the competition will happen this year since there's so little time left. But if she doesn't get to serve for the contest this year, I'm keeping my fingers crossed that she will next year. What an incredibly brave person to want to go out onto those waves. I know. I can't believe anyone does that. I mean, just when I was out there on a boat, I was (laughs) dying. I would (laughs) just just think the margin for error would be so slim with something that gigantic and powerful. I know. I don't know how anyone lives. In fact, there have been a few deaths out there, unfortunately. I know. All right. Let's talk more about the ocean and waves. you, you probably remember this. Last year's hurricane season was devastating for the Caribbean. 
with hurricane after hurricane just hitting and ravaging that area. Now researchers at UC Santa Cruz and the Nature Conservancy have measured how much coral reefs protect coasts. And they've been able to test out a solution to the problem of dying reefs. Working in Grenville Bay, Grenada, which is an island in the Caribbean Sea, the researchers showed that breakdown of coral reefs is directly linked to erosion of the coastline and coastal flooding in parts of that bay. The researchers found that in areas where there are healthy reefs, the bay's coastline is in good shape because the reefs reduce the wave energy that gets to shore. Makes sense, right? Yes, it does. In contrast, in areas where there were severely degraded reefs, there was really bad coastal erosion. In the northern part of the bay, the shoreline is disappearing at a rate of nearly two feet a year. That is kind of alarming. Can you believe that? You'd be walking on the beach and then like next day, <laughs> two feet of it is gone. So here's the cool part. The researchers tested a breakwater structure that could help the coral reef recover and reduce coastal erosion and flooding. The reef restoration structure is made from inexpensive and locally sourced materials and labor. It's easy to assemble on site. It's suitable for wave energy um, or uh, for high wave energy or hurricane exposure. And it's designed to encourage habitat restoration and enhancement. Science and experience are showing that coastal habitats like coral reefs, wetlands, and dunes can offer effective and cost-effective protection from the increasing impacts of climate change. You know what I love about this story? What? Is the fact that wildlife, coastal ecology, and the fate of human beings are all kind of tied together. Yeah. That you could have this structure that protects people protects property, but is also good for the ecosystems, good for wildlife. Exactly. It's a win-win. So we like that. And I have more to talk about on climate change. There's a great sounding event coming up, the fifth annual Climate Science and Policy Conference, which is going to do something really interesting. It'll bring together an artist and a scientist for a conversation about how humans and ecosystems will cope on a warming planet. It's called Humans and Wild Ecosystems in a Hot World, and it'll be Wednesday, March 7 at 7 p.m. at the Rio Theater in Santa Cruz. It's free. F-R-E-E, my favorite price, and open to the public. However, advanced registration is required, so go to ucsc.edu, click on calendars at the top, go to the campus events calendar, and just do a search for climate conference, and it'll pop up. The keynote speakers are Newton Harrison and Scott Wing, and then there'll be a panel discussion, including questions from the audience. Harrison is an art professor here at UC Santa Cruz. He pioneered what's called the ecological art movement four decades ago. He's known for addressing environmental challenges, including how urbanization and climate change are affecting ecosystems. He and his wife, Helen, work at the intersection of art and science, collaborating with biologists, ecologists, architects, planners, and politicians to open up dialogue. And here's what's amazing. They change public policy. Right now, Harrison's working on areas where conservation collides with exploitation, most recently on forest systems. Scott Wing is a biologist who explores evolution, ecology, and climate change at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History, where he's a curator of fossil plants. His research focuses on a period of globally warm climate beginning 150 million years ago, 
And he's worked, he's long worked to uncover the causes and effects of a sudden global warming event that occurred 56 million years ago that has a lot of similarities to current human-caused changes in the atmosphere and climate. This year, the conference is being co-sponsored by three academic divisions, arts, social sciences, and physical and biological sciences. So it's a great interdisciplinary event that should be really thought-provoking. Sounds like a really interesting event. Yeah. So once again, it's March 7 at 7 p.m. at the Rio Theater, and it's free, but advanced registration is required. Go to ucsc.edu, click on calendars at the top, go to the campus events calendar, and do a search for climate conference. Okay. So Dan, what's on your news radar? Well, one of the big ones is the uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial convocation, which was just held in uh, downtown Santa Cruz at the Civic, and it's always a very big deal. Yeah. I've been a bunch of times. They've had a lot of amazing people over the years. I went and saw Nikki Giovanni, mm -hmm. who's a poet and a professor and activist, and she was so thought-provoking and hysterical <laughs> and hard-hitting. They had Angela Davis yeah. one year, and Alicia Garza of Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. I just remember some of those exciting MLK convocations where the line just wraps around and around the block, and people are so eager yeah. to get in. And they had a big one this year. At a really high note, the keynote speaker was Kimberly Crenshaw. She's a really influential professor at UCLA and Columbia Law School. And she brought the house down, yeah, or she raised heard. it up, rather. <laughs> Seized the moment. Uh, she, of course, coined the term uh, intersectionality, which is the mm -hmm. set of related circumstances, gender and sexuality and ethnicity, all these related issues that kind of can be twined mm. that uh, come to bear on things like prejudice uh, and policy. Mm -hmm. And this, she really seized on this moment, this political moment, when she said rather chillingly, that we're now going through at this moment probably the most profound unraveling of the racial justice agenda that we've seen since the end of Reconstruction. And so that's, that really is kind of a wake-up call. Mm -hmm. and, though, and she really, of course, praised uh, Martin Luther King Jr. very much for speaking out against the Vietnam War. She also praised him highly for being such a powerful and enduring conduit of hope for change that's achieved through direct action. She also had some concerns yeah. about, about him, uh, especially for the whole idea of male voices being privileged uh, during the civil rights uh, movement, being kind of the centerpiece of that, and the whole idea that if you really wanted a better future for America's African-American uh, kids, then you really needed to mostly emphasize traditional family values, job programs for black men. And she, her concern really was that female voices and concerns were just simply left out of the picture and that it's really high time to readjust that, to correct against that. And uh, as she said, no one seemed to notice that the best way to secure the social and economic well-being of children of color is to secure the social and economic well-being of their mothers. And uh, she also said, great speaker, we're tired of being the wheels on this bus. It's time for us to be in the driver's seat, she said. The drip, drip, drip of trickle-down social justice is not the cadence we need to be marching to. And she also expressed some concern about Americans who acted as if they were, uh, in her words, living in a post-racial society after Barack Obama was elected as president and just kind of got a little bit complacent, less vigilant, let their guard down, and now look where we are. Um, some people are so convinced we're moving forward that we haven't noticed we are passing through the same terrain we passed before, she said. But there was also some hope there because she said, I see my dream 
is far from realized, but I see that hope has not expired, but has been renewed again as fuel for change. Mm. So powerful words. And Kimberly Crenshaw's speech covered a period of American history that spanned dozens of years dating back to the 60s and 70s. So I think it's really kind of fitting that our next subject, a more lighthearted subject, is a couple whose love spans decades of history, going back to that period that she referenced, of course. So we're going to go back right now to UC Santa Cruz in the early 70s. There's social unrest and big marches and, of course, groovy music. And there was this kid, this kind of a hotshot young kid named Rich Valenti, kind of a big shot on campus because he was a Cowell College RA, sort of an authority leadership figure, but you're also a student, kind of in between. But he also started a free bus service on campus, so kind of a big deal, right? Uh -huh, yeah. And then you have a, call, a Cowell College frosh named Elisa Lightburn, who was really impressed with Rich, found him rather dashing and handsome, and she caught his eye too. They even went to a formal waltz together, which I'm surprised that the early UCSC would have a formal waltz. It seems kind of out I of know, now it's like a rave. Keeping. It'd be like a <laughs> rave, yeah. And they kissed on the Cowell steps. But the way things just went, they never really got together as a couple. The timing was just messed up as can happen. Yeah. She had a steady boyfriend. It just the, the beads didn't line up, yeah. the love beads, I should say. Mm -hmm. But she still did something that was really affectionate and really sweet, and as it turned out, rather portentous as well. Mm -hmm. Because one day, just to show that she couldn't really get together with this guy, but she really liked him an awful lot, and she went ahead and she gave him a check mm -hmm. from a fictitious creation called the Cowell College Love Bank. <laughs> and this check, which was beautifully written, I saw a copy of this that she'd an image, promising him on this check an indeterminate amount of love at some point in the future. But you know what? It didn't specify a time frame. <laughs> and that check was really classy, written with nice handwriting. And anyhow, they went their separate ways. And Elisa became a really adventurous educator for many years, working overseas, got married at kids. And Rich worked in transit, got married at kids of his own. But guess what? Hmm. For some reason, he didn't throw that check away from the love <laughs> bank. Wow. He kept it. He Hang wrote on. his a book of poetry, and he kept that check in the back of the book, kind of like a bookmark. So, of course, through all the years, a, a book is kind of a little museum that it's perfectly preserved yeah. away from the light, not faded. Anyhow, a few years ago, she was working as a teacher in Kurdish Iraq, super intense job, really hard, but she had a little bit of downtime. So she would go on social media and get this. While she was searching on social media, she thought she'd check and see what Rich was up to. And she became really concerned where all these messages on Rich's social media page at Facebook, praying for a speedy recovery. And she oh. thought, what? So she got in touch for him with him for the first time in decades and said, hey there, Rich, is everything okay? And he says, hey, how are you doing? I'm recovering from heart surgery. Oh. And by the way, where are you and are you married? <laughs> wow. Get to the point. So they started Skyping like crazy. I should also mention that by that by then they had divorced. They'd uh -huh. gone their separate ways from those other relationships. Okay. And like two love-struck teenagers, they Skyped. And then Rich did something that was just pretty astounding for her. He emailed her an attachment. And when she clicked on it and opened it up, what did she see? The original the Cowell Love Bank check. <laughs> and she just about fell out of her chair. She was laughing because... Basically, Rich was saying, hey, time to pay up. Yeah. I'm cashing this check. <laughs> so lo and behold, she returns to the U.S. a couple of years ago. They start living together. They went on a bike trip to Italy, a bike trip. And lo and behold, she proposed. 
and he accepted. And now they're living here in Santa Cruz, having tons of fun. Their kids from the previous marriages get along. They're living happily ever after. But what I just want to say is, hmm. well, one thing that's true is that love takes time. Hmm. But the other thing that I also just want to say is that before you throw out your college lecture notes and your box of college <laughs> textbooks, sure just make sure there's no love check in there because your future <laughs> happiness might be at stake. So this is kind of like kind of like a, a benediction for all you kind of pack rats out there. Oh, Maybe yeah. there's some good stuff you're holding on. Anyhow, and uh, speaking of letters that have been lying around for a long while but have retained their power to inspire and to influence, UC Santa Cruz film and digital media professor Irene Lustig spent the summer of 2014 reading thousands of letters, mostly unpublished letters, some of them 40 years old or more. And these letters were written to Ms. Magazine from women all over America. And Ms. Magazine, as you may recall, was one of the first big mainstream magazines that began that had a really a feminist outlook. Hmm. Now, Professor Lustig found it very striking and poignant that so many issues covered by these letters that were decades old were in her words, still covering the same big issues that women and gender nonconforming people are facing today. Sexual wow. harassment, violence, assault, access to abortion and birth control, body image, workplace discrimination, gender and sexuality, race, class, inclusivity, a treasure trove of letters. So she did something that was really interesting and creative and forward thinking with these letters. She decided to make them kind of a living artifact she went on the road, set up a, on a journey, and what she did was she shared these letters with women all over the U.S., mm. and it became kind of a catalyst. They would read from these letters, and they would also respond to them, and she filmed over 300 readings with people from 32 different states. Pretty incredible. And she yeah. would match people with a particular letter from the 70s, and the result of this really interesting creative idea is a brand-new film called Yours and Sisterhood, which is being presented at the two... 2018 Berlinau. It's a major film festival in Berlin, Germany, and it's one of the world's leading international film fests. The annual event screens nearly 400 films each year of every length and format. And I should also point out that UC Santa Cruz alumnus Alex Johnson will also have a film screened mm -hmm. at the Berlinau. So it's a pretty uh, fascinating project, and wow. I, I love That's what she's done with it too. How interesting that you know these the, uh, this letters create this tapestry of women's issues over time and it's a way of bringing out what is what hasn't changed and needs needs to be done. And the amazing thing too is a lot of the letters that she is referencing in this film were never published. They had mm. just been kind of lying in wait for someone to discover them. Wow, so Ms. had like boxes of these old letters just yes. kind of sitting around. And just, she had access to that. Just kind of like uh, like we're talking, like <laughs> be a pack rat, you might find something interesting. And I wonder if this would happen today because now we got emails, you know, I wonder if you'd even have access to those that same kind of material culture mm. that you would. So. Well, if you're you and me, Dan, because you and I never trash our emails, like we probably take up half the um, half the Google storage space of billion trillion terabits out in the desert somewhere. I keep everything. <laughs> it's just a, a virtual pack rat, and you know, <laughs> maybe I'll eventually discover something really worthwhile. Yeah, and deep in and the then, guts of my you know several different computers. Yeah, then sell it for billions. Exactly. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. We're going to wrap up, but we will see you next time for the UCSC Weekly News Roundup podcast. See you all Take soon. Have a good weekend. Bye.